morning again, everyone. It is so good to see you all here. My name is Eric. I'm uh, now one of the pastors here. I was going to say one of the, I guess I was the only pastor, but we do have Pastor Phil still with us. And one of the things that's really great about this season, as we move into Lent, although we've had to say goodbye to Pastor Ben, we've had to be happy for them and sad for us, as we said goodbye to them last week, one of the exciting things is that we get to see some familiar faces around here. So what you're going to see, you're going to see Pastor Phil grown back a little bit more. I, some of you in here may not know him. He was a pastor for a long time at St. Paul. Uh, many of you who attended there or who've been around for a while, you know Pastor Phil. And he's going to be with us. You're going to see his face a little bit more. You're also going to see Mitch uh, who was our youth director here for several years and now is living overseas. And he's back at home for a little bit for about six months, so we'll get to see him a little bit more. And he'll be helping us out in this service along with preaching a little bit on Sunday mornings as well as doing some of the midweek Lent teaching. So you're going to see this pastoral team kind of change a little bit as we move into the season of transition. And so I hope that you enjoy this time that we get to Bind together and work together and continue on in what God has for us. And with that, this change has come in Lent, which is an interesting time for us to have change. And this opportunity for us to re-examine ourselves, our church, our lives, what we're doing. Lent provides us an opportunity to do just that. Uh, for many of you, you may have decided that you're going to give something up for Lent. Or something that you may have heard is, is uh, what are you doing for Lent? Is that a question that some of you have heard? What are you doing for Lent? Oftentimes during Lent, we fast from something. We choose not to partake in some kind of food or drink or some of those things. And usually when we head into Lent, we get into Ash Wednesday and our expectations are this high. We say, I'm not going to eat any of these kinds of food or I'm not going to buy these kinds of things or whatever our fast might be. And then usually by Friday, and I know for sure some of you by Friday had already decided that you're like, oh, I'm going to scale that back just a little bit. Maybe not do as much as I thought. And so some of you are looking at each other. I know, I know who you are. Well, we head into Lent. Oftentimes we think about Lent as an opportunity of repentance or penance. And Lent generally has a kind of somber uh, feel about it. So it's usually the tone is serious or somber. But did you know that Lent, the word Lent, simply means spring? And so it comes at this time of year as we prepare for Easter, which falls right at this springtime for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere. And Lent wasn't always somber. It wasn't always this time of like serious fasting, these sorts of things. In fact, Lent, way back at the beginning, was a time of preparation for baptism. So the folks who were adults who were going to be baptized, they were, before Christianity was the empire's religion, before Christianity had a hold on the culture of the Roman Empire, when it was still underground and it was still hidden, they would do this 40-day preparation for baptism, and they would always get baptized on Easter, the day that Jesus was resurrected. And so they would be baptized, and they would be resurrected with Jesus on Easter. And so Easter was this huge celebration with lots of baptisms, and they would have all these folks get ready for baptism by taking these 40 days of preparation and anticipation. And yeah, it was hard work because they had to think about their own lives. They had to think about their sin. They had to dwell on the seriousness of following Jesus because at that time, it was serious business. You might be persecuted and you might be killed for being a Christian at that time. It certainly wasn't as easy as just coming in here and filling out a connection card like it is now. Back then, it was a lot of work 
to be a Christian. You really had to give up your old life in order to believe in Jesus Christ and to follow him. And so Lent was, these, was this 40-day time where there was this anticipation, expectation, and preparation for Easter, for resurrection, for baptism. Now, we get a little bit of this. We can see it around us at this springtime, this Lent time. As you guys know, uh, I love nature. My family and I, we love nature. We love being outside. And so maybe some of you who are like me have noticed that there's something very exciting happening in our flower beds and in the flower beds in our neighborhoods, right? The tulips and the crocuses are starting to peek out a little bit. We have little stalks about this big, little green stalks that are shooting up in our flower beds. I'm sure some of you have the same thing going on. Our perennials are beginning to creep up, and this is exciting because this is a promise. Spring is coming. This week is going to be very nice. We may have a couple more cold days ahead of us in March yet, but spring is coming, and we get to anticipate it. And so these little shoots of tulips, of green, of crocus flowers, we get to see them and know for sure that spring is coming. Lent is a little bit like this. It's an opportunity for us to see that there is resurrection possible, that Jesus is, in fact, doing something. Lent is an opportunity for us to notice and see and anticipate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, anticipate Easter. So as we go through this Lent season, you're going to hear lots of scriptures about resurrection, new creation, renewal, these kinds of things. So year C in the lectionary, for whatever reason, this is how it falls, that we're highlighting a lot of these passages. We're looking forward to and anticipating this new thing that God is doing in us and in the world around us. So Lynn's going to take a little bit of a different flavor this year. Maybe be a little bit less somber, a little bit more exciting and anticipatory. So that's what we're going to be going on this journey over the next several weeks as we look forward to Easter. And this passage is one of those passages where it's a kind of an exciting passage that we get to spend our time during Lent looking at. And so let's jump in. This is a passage from Philippians chapter 3. And it says this. This is how we begin. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. And observe those who live according to the example you have in us. So this section of scripture, we have this transition where uh, Paul, he's, he's, he's really, he spent a lot of time in Philippians talking about theology and kind of talking about who Jesus is and what he's done. And then in the back half of his letters, he gets to this implication. He starts getting boots on the ground and talking about exactly what this all means. And so this is what we get here. He's moving into this application portion of his sermon, if you will. He's really trying to apply it to us. And so he says here, brothers and sisters, and he gives this encouragement, this command, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example that we have set. So for Paul, Jesus was a savior, is a savior on the move. Jesus is heading somewhere. He's going somewhere. Jesus has some end, some goal in mind, and he's forging a path forward. All through Paul's letters, we see this, that Jesus is working towards something. He's working towards some end that we'll talk about here in a little bit, in a couple minutes. And so that's what Paul's saying here. Jesus is out ahead of us, blazing the trail, moving forward, pushing forward through the weeds, through the brush. He's clearing a path for us. And in our lives, there are people 
who have walked with Jesus longer than we have. Maybe they've been a little bit more intentional about walking with Jesus, and they're ahead of us on this path, on this trail. And Paul's encouragement here is to imitate and observe those people who are ahead of us. Because there are some things in our faith life, some things in our spiritual walk that we really struggle with. There are areas, blind spots of trust that we, don't, we haven't really given everything over to Jesus. And there are people in our communities, in our church, that we see have maybe developed that in their own faith walk. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying imitate them. Do what they do, act like they act, talk to them, follow them as they follow Jesus. They're out ahead of you, so walk the trail behind them. If Jesus seems a little bit too far away, Find some people who are along the path that you can follow and imitate and go down. Imitation in the Christian life is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Here, it's a command. Imitate. If you see somebody who's out ahead of you, imitate them. Begin to do what they do. Ask questions of them about how they develop their faith. Follow them as they follow Jesus and look at what they do. Look at how they live. Look at how they talk and ask questions about how they think. This is this first command. Jesus is going somewhere, and there are others who are on the path, so follow them. And then Paul continues, and he says this, for many, this is the warning, for many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly, and their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. So he's given this encouragement. Jesus is going somewhere, and you need to follow him and follow those who are following Jesus. And then he says, and there's another path. There's another way. If you joined us on Wednesday for our Lent midweek service, Mitch did a really nice job of talking about this from Psalm 1, that there are two paths ahead of us. There are two ways ahead of us. And there's this other way, the way of the enemies of the cross. There are enemies of the cross who are forging another trail, another path that has the option, you have the option of going down. You can follow the enemies of the cross. They're heading somewhere too. And what we hear here is the end, their end is destruction. The goal, the end that they are moving toward is death, is destruction. Now, Paul hasn't quite laid out exactly where Jesus is headed. He's keeping us in suspense. But we know for sure that the enemies of the cross, they are headed toward destruction. The path they are forging leads to death. And what is that path? It says here, their God is the belly, and their glory is their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. Now, this word belly here is really interesting. Uh, for the Greeks and even for the Hebrews, the the seat, the, the place of authority in the per human body was, you know, we would say the heart or the brain, right? And we kind of mean the same thing. We mean our emotional center, how we think about things. And for the Greeks and the Hebrews, it was more in the bowels. It was kind of here. And this is what drives humans from this perspective. And so it's a little bit like this. If you have something that you're anxious about or something you're not looking forward to, what happens? You get a brick in your stomach, Right? It caught, you actually have a physical reaction in your belly when you are afraid of something or facing something or excited about something. 
Same thing with all sorts of other urges. It can be fear, anxiety, sexual urges. Generally, it comes from this area, right? This, for the Greek mindset and the Hebrew mindset, is kind of the seat. This is the throne of the human body. And what he's saying here is, these enemies of the cross, their God is their belly. It's this place where we draw desire and anticipation and anxiety and excitement. So these enemies of the cross, they have placed their desires, they've, they've placed what they want, they've placed what they are looking for in themselves, in this desire. This is their God, not the Lord Jesus Christ. Another way to think about this is, we don't know for sure who said this. It could have been Martin Luther. It could have been St. Augustine, the third century saint. But someone, either Martin Luther or St. Augustine, said, sin is the person curved in on themselves. So sin is when we look to ourselves, look to our own desires, look to our own strength to get us out of trouble, to be our savior. And all sin stems from us looking in on ourselves. And the key of the Christian life is breaking this open and receiving Jesus Christ and receiving his promises for us. But I think that's what's happening here. These individuals, their God, the place that they get their trust and hope from, it's themselves. It's their own ambitions and their own desires and their own comfort. They pay more attention to their negative thoughts than the word of the Lord. They pay more attention to their ambitions in their career or in their relationships and in the Lord. They're drawing meaning and trust and hope from themselves. And this morning, I'm here to tell you some bad news. You are a rotten savior. You're really bad at saving yourself. And you're really bad at saving other people. If you're looking to yourself for comfort, you're in trouble. Because I've walked with enough people at the end of their life that I know when it comes time for us to die, it is not pretty. And you have no control. It doesn't matter your ambition. It doesn't matter your career. It doesn't matter your relationships. You are a rotten savior. But we know a good savior. We know a good one. That's what Paul is doing here. These people have turned in on themselves so much that everything's upside down. Their glory is their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. The path they are going down is going to lead to death. And then we have this contrast. But our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says these people, they're turning on themselves, but we, we do not have our minds set on earthly things. Our citizenship, our hope is in heaven. And heaven is a generalized term for the place that God rules, where his throne is. In this language and the way they thought about it, they would say literally the skies is kind of how they would think about this. But this just represents where God is and where he rules is this idea of heaven. It's his realm, the place that he lives. And Jesus Christ is with him now, sitting on the throne with him. And so from heaven, from God's realm, we are expecting a savior. And we know in Revelation, what does Jesus do? He has ascended into heaven and he will come back, right? 
he is going to descend upon earth. And we hear in Revelation that he's going to make earth new. That all the brokenness and sadness and all these things are going to be remade. So we look toward God knowing that our Savior is there. And we anticipate and we expect him to come back. To do what? To make all things new. To renew the earth. And it says in Revelation that the heavenly city, this new Jerusalem, will come down from heaven and will rest upon earth. And the earth will be made new and there will be no sickness. There will be no need. Our bodies will be transformed. We will live forever with Jesus and his Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the hope that we have. This is the direction that Jesus is going. And Paul continues with this thought. He says, he will, that is Jesus, will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. So at the end of the day, our bodies are weak. Our bodies are broken. Sin has irreversibly broken our bodies. We age, we get old, our bones creak, and we eventually die, right? This room is a little bit younger than our first service. In our second, or sorry, this room is a little bit younger than our first service. In our first service, death is much more imminent to a lot of those individuals. They are more acutely aware that they are going to die. But here in this room, we all have to face the fact that we are going to die. Our bodies will fail us and we will face our death. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ is that he's going to take this body of humiliation, this body that fails, this body that gets sick, this body that will eventually die, he's gonna take this body and it's gonna be transformed. It's gonna be changed and conformed to his glory. Now, after Jesus was resurrected, his body was very strange. It was still him. We think that the disciples could tell it was him. He looked like himself, maybe sometimes. He had the holes in his hands where he was crucified. He had the hole in his side where he was pierced with a spear. But then he could somehow appear in a locked room. He could eat food but maybe could like teleport or walk through walls, right? We don't really know. It's very strange. It's all very dreamlike when he's resurrected. And this is a glorified body that he has. It's a body beyond our physical limitations. It's a body beyond what we can even understand. And the goal, the end, the direction that Jesus is working toward is making all of us and the whole world like his glorious body transformed, renewed, eternal, everlasting, always well, never sick, able to partake in feasts and joy and hugs, but being beyond this momentary affliction, this body of humiliation. That's the goal that Jesus is moving toward, and he's pulling us along. He's ushering us Along, This is the work that God is doing in our world. This is the work that God is doing right now. And here's the deal, is that God is stronger than death. He's stronger than your sickness. He's stronger than your weakness. He's stronger than the political leaders in our world. He's stronger than the enemy in our world. And he will make all things new. It's done. It's guaranteed. 
That's the goal that he's working toward. And nothing is going to stop him from doing that thing. Just like there is nothing that you and I can do to stop spring from coming. The tulips are going to bloom. The weather is going to get warmer. And spring is coming. It's inevitable. There's nothing we can do to stop it. In the same way, God is making all things new. And there is nothing, nothing that's going to stop him from doing that. And he's inviting us along to participate in this new creation. And so now we have these moments. We have these images here. Because at the end of the day, our bodies are still going to get old and die. Our bodies are still going to get sick. But we have these moments where the Holy Spirit touches us and conforms us to Jesus' mind and his heart. Where we experience little bits of new creation even now. We're told in scripture that, well, they're called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and the rest. We're told that we have all the spiritual blessings, all the interior blessings in the heavenly places. These are little moments. These are the shoots of the tulips popping up out of the snow, out of the dirt, that we get to see that new creation is real, that it's working. Reconciled relationships within a family, that's new creation working. Hope when, we have, when we're facing death and sickness. That's new creation working. Peace, when we feel overwhelmed by the Holy, when we feel overwhelmed, when we get receive peace from the Holy Spirit, that's new creation at work. We see it. The little shoots of green popping up out of the cold, hard ground. This is what Paul tells us to pay attention to. Imitate the people who can see the green. Imitate the people who are like the tulips popping up at the end of winter. Be like them. And this is how he ends. He ends with a a little bit of a prayer. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. This is a pastor's prayer. This is how he ends this section. He's a pastor talking to his congregation, and he says, My brothers and my sisters, my joy and my crown, stand firm. See the new creation at work in your lives. Find those places of peace and joy and hope and goodness. Cultivate them. Draw them out. Let it grow and flourish. Yes, you're going to get sick. Yes, your body, the body of your humiliation is still active. You're going to face some hard things. You're going to mess up. But we can keep looking at and cultivating this green, these tulips that are popping up out of the ground. This is the prayer of a pastor. This is my prayer for you all. My joy and my crown. My beloved, see where God is at work. Pay attention and stand firm. And yeah, you're going to get sick. Yeah, you're going to sin. Yeah, you're going to mess up. And yes, you're going to die. In fact, some people in this room, I might bury some of you. But we have this opportunity to experience new creation bubbling up and growing within each and every one of us by the Holy Spirit. We're called to see it, stand firm in it, and cultivate it. So my joy and my crown, stand firm in these things. Find those areas of peace and love and joy and help them grow in your life. And experience this new creation as we all follow Jesus together. Amen? Amen.
we have an opportunity this morning to experience one of these moments of new creation in a very real and tangible way through baptism. So at this point, I'm going to invite uh, Mike and Bailey with Grace and then Joey and Shannon as well. You guys can come up. I'm going to invite them up here and we get to celebrate the baptism of Grace Schneiderbauer. And this is a time that we really get to see. We get to see it happen. We get to see new creation at work in the life of a young one. And the way that we see new creation happen is because new creation happens through God's word. You guys can stand in a line right here facing the congregation. We'll be up here. Because God gives us promises. And he is making a promise to Grace this morning. That Grace is his beloved daughter. That he is caring for her. And that he is looking after her. And that he is developing her into a strong woman of God. And a new creation in Jesus Christ. And so baptism is another interesting thing. It's such an interesting thing that we do like confession and forgiveness, where it's a moment that God enters into our world in this very direct and physical way. And this is what we hear in scripture about baptism from 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 says this, when God patiently waited during the time of Noah, Noah built an ark in which a few, that is eight people, were rescued through water. Baptism is like that. It saves you now, not because it removes dirt from your body, but because it is the mark of a good conscience toward God. Your salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at God's right side. Now that he has gone into heaven, he rules over all angels, authorities, and powers. So guys, as you, you've baptized Jackson already, you've been through even Godparents for Joel and these things, you know about baptism. But this is a really, really important time where God is saying something very specific to grace. What he is saying is that grace is chosen, chosen by him, to live with him forever and to experience all the benefits of new creation, all the fruit of the Spirit, all those things, all the joy and peace and patience and the rest. She is given those right now. That's the promise that he has for her and that she will live forever with Jesus and his father in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, it is your responsibility as parents to make sure that you are raising her in such a way that she knows and can pay attention to these things. And so that's really the call at this point. So Mike and Bailey today are presenting their child, Grace Elizabeth, for Christian baptism. And since this is a sacrament, this place where God uses physical means to give us his word, it is a sacred time in the lives of both Mike and Bailey and Grace. Christ gave this holy sacrament as a sign and a seal of the new covenant. Christian baptism signifies for Grace her gracious acceptance as God's very own. It is an acknowledgement of God's grace at work in the life of Grace within the care of her mother and father and extended family under the nurture of the community of faith. It gives confidence to her that she is loved by God and can grow in love and knowledge as a Christian. So Mike and Bailey, do you desire for your child to be baptized? If you do, say, we do. Amen. In presenting grace for baptism, you both are hereby witnessing to your own personal Christian faith. Mike and Bailey, do you announce your faith in Jesus Christ and show that you want to study him, know him, love him, and serve him as his disciples, and that you want grace to do the same? If you do, say, we do. We do. Amen. To this end, it is your duty to teach grace as soon as she is able to learn 
the nature of baptism and to watch over her education that she may not be led astray, to direct her feet to the sanctuary, to restrain her from evil associates and habits, and as much as you can, bring her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Mike and Bailey, will you nurture grace in Christ's holy church, that by your teaching and example she may be guided to receive God's grace by faith, to profess her faith openly and to lead a Christian life? If so, answer, with God's help, we will. With God's help, we will. Amen. Joey and Shanna, godparents fill a special role in the life of a child. In accepting the role of godparents, you promise to participate in the life of grace, doing everything in your power and in the strength of God to assist the parents in the spiritual nurture of this child. So do you, as a godparent of this child, promise to share responsibility with Mike and Bailey for grace, to pray for her and to walk with her in the way of Christ, to help her take her place within the life of worship in Christ's church? If so, answer, with God's help, we will. Amen, amen. Now, the rest of us don't get off the hook so easy because we as a congregation also have to make a commitment today. We play an important role in the life of a young Christian and Christians of all ages. So you, as the congregation of Jesus Christ that she is baptized into, as her Sunday school teacher, kid life teacher, teen life teachers, as her coaches and friends, and uh, all those out in the community as you see her, do you promise as well to pray for Grace and for Mike and Bailey, her parents, and to assist Grace in her life in Christ? If you do, say, with God's help, we will. With God's help, we will. Amen, amen. Well, I invite you all to join me at this time in confessing the faith that we are baptizing Grace into using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. At this point, Mike, we'll bring Grace over here. Hold her on her back. And hold Grace back is there. so slippery. I believe it, yeah. All right, just hold her. Yeah, right there. Hi, Grace. How you doing, sweetie? Are you doing okay? Hi, this is all very strange, isn't it? Well, Grace, it is my pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, man. Good job, girl. You did great. Here's a baptismal cloth as a keepsake. Well, and uh, at this point, we also anoint the child with oil, and this represents the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of this child, that she is filled with Jesus' presence and given the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We also have the baptismal candle as well that was lit from the Christ candle on the altar, and this represents the presence of Jesus Christ, uh, not only here during worship service, but also in her life. So the baptismal candle is a tool for you to teach her uh, about her baptism. Oh, excuse you. Excuse you. And on this day every year, you can light the candle and remind her about what God has done for her. So after we're done here, Joey, I'll give you the candle. 
And at this point, let's step forward a little bit and have you two step forward in the middle. And Joey and Shannon, will you lay your hands on them as well? And uh, for all of you, when we lay on of hands, this is an ancient practice of giving the Holy Spirit to other Christians. And so uh, will you join me in spiritually laying on your hands to Grace as we pray for her at this time? Lord, I am so grateful that you have given Grace, uh, not only to Mike and Bailey and to the whole Schneiderbauer family, Lord, but to our church. And uh, Lord, personally into my life, I'm grateful for Mike and Bailey the friends that they are to, to me and the parents that they are becoming uh, for Jackson and Grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them your Holy Spirit, that you would guide them to a robust faith and trust in you, that they would lead their children into uh, this glorious future that you have for us. Lord, we pray for Grace that you would give her your Holy Spirit, that she would know you and love you day by day, uh, that she would be raised in such a way that uh, she would know to trust in you and look to you for all of her needs. And so, Lord, we bless this family and we commission this family with the responsibility of reminding Grace constantly of the good news of Jesus Christ, that she is loved and she is forgiven. And so, Lord, go with them and go with us also. Pray to us all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce to you for the first time our new sister in Christ, Grace Elizabeth Schneiderbauer. Will you join me in welcoming her?